be praying for uh, my, my voice here. I've, I, we've had just a couple of incredible services, and I don't know how to do a cat whistle yet, so all I know how to do is scream. And uh, I, when I get excited, I do that, and I forget, like, I've got two more services to do, so I end up shooting out my voice. But it's feeling stronger by the second here, so just keep that in prayer. I want to do a little thing, a little, little different thing here this morning. <clears throat> a lot of times on Easter, uh, we, we have messages on the significance of the resurrection. And what it means to us, how it transforms our life, and those are wonderful things to think about. We try to preach this message and, and live this message that those who believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and rose from the dead, this isn't something we think about and celebrate just once a year. Now, once a year, we, we like to focus on it and celebrate it more intentionally. But if you believe in the resurrection, it ought to be a reality that you walk in every day of your life. Amen? And so... Um, the significance of the resurrection is something we hit on a lot. So on Easter, I like to do something a little different. I know that there's a lot of times a lot of visitors who are here just kind of checking out this thing. And a lot of you maybe aren't convinced that the resurrection even happened. You're, you're not convinced that this, in fact, was a historical fact. And so I like to take Easter sometimes, not all the time, but once in a while, and just lay out some of the reasons that one might give for believing that the resurrection is in fact true. Because if you don't believe the resurrection is true, it's going to be really hard for you to appreciate any message about the significance of the resurrection. Now what I love about the Lord, one of the things I love about the Lord, uh, is that He doesn't ask us to turn our brains off when it comes to believing in Him. In fact, if you read the Bible carefully, He tells us to turn our brains on in order to come to believe in Him. He says this, come let us reason together. Let us reason. Think about this. There is no gulf between being emotional for Jesus and thinking hard about Jesus. You know, sometimes we have this dichotomy. I, I, some of you know that I graduated from Yale. And one time I was in a service and God was moving and I get, you know, we were all excited and joyful and dance around or whatever. And I got preaching and I get real excited and I got, you know, I don't know, I just get carried away. This is cool stuff I'm talking about here. And afterwards this guy who was a, a Yale alumni came up to me. He says, I heard you graduated from Yale. And I said, yeah, I did. He goes, well, I'm an alumni. I said, oh, well, that's wonderful. And, 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 he, and he says, no, I'm just kind of surprised about this. And I said, why? He goes, well, you weren't exactly acting like, like a Yaley up there. And I, I just sort of went, oh, really? <laughs> Tell me what a Yaley is supposed to act like. You see, his idea was this. You know, if you go to an Ivy League school, and if you're a person who likes to use their brain and think about things, well, then you don't get emotional. You don't get emotional. You're, you're always kind of reserved. You know, you don't get excited about stuff. Although I've been to Yale-Harvard games, and I've seen some of them get pretty excited. Especially when they get a little inebriated, man. I'm telling you, you've never seen folks like this. But when you go to church, it's supposed to be very reserved. But you see, here's the thing. If, 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 if you don't get excited about the resurrection, and you don't get excited about the things of God, it doesn't tell me that you're using your brain a lot. It tells me you're not using your brain enough. Because the more clearly I think about God, the more excited I get about Him. Amen? I mean, this is stuff that is just life-transforming. It's redeeming. It's, it's incredible stuff. I like to get excited about the Lord, and I do. I, I, get, I like to get emotional about the Lord, and I do. Sometimes I like to dance before the Lord, and I do. Other times I like to weep before the Lord, and I do. Friday night we had one of the most touching, moving, somber services I've ever been a part of. Our Good Friday service was just... You know, we dismissed the people and no one left. It's like, get out of here, you know. But they wanted to stay because the presence of God was so thick. The point here is this. 
To do that, we don't turn off our brains, we turn on our brains. The Bible says to worship the Lord with all of your heart, that's your emotions, but we also are to worship the Lord with all of our mind, the Bible says. And we worship the Lord with all of our mind by using it. So what I want to do this morning here is is simply this, call us to use our mind and think through, think through the reasons that can be given for why we should think that the, the resurrection is a historical fact. I love the fact that the resurrection gives me joy, it gives me peace, it, it gives me hope. Um, I love that. But you know what? I'd leave it in a second if I didn't think there was good evidence for it. If, I didn't, if, I, if my mind was not convinced, my heart can't get behind something that my mind's not convinced of. And if I wasn't intellectually convinced that this was true, I'd be on moving on to the next religion or the next philosophy or the next whatever, trying to find the truth. I don't want to be just self-deceived in an emotional buzz. It needs to be grounded in fact. Now my, my, my belief is that, and this is what I want to talk about the next 25 minutes. My belief is that in fact Christianity is grounded in fact. And if, if you just think clearly enough and are honest with yourself about the evidence, you cannot deny that the resurrection is a historical reality. So what I want to do this morning is I want to ask this question. It comes right out of the Bible and it's this. Are Christians pathetic? Because, see, if, if the resurrection isn't true and we're just, you know, just having our jollies here this morning, getting emotional or whatever, then we're pathetic. It's pitiful. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised, if this isn't a historical fact, your faith is futile. Futile. It's empty. It's just blowing hot air in the wind. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, if this is a, 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 simply a thing about making life a little bit easier, giving a little bit of hope to an otherwise hopeless life, giving a little bit of meaning to an otherwise meaningless life, if that is what it's all about, Paul says, we are, we believers, are of all people most to be pitied. These poor, pitiful people who can't live up to reality. Part of what I'm asking here this morning is this. Is it the Christians who can't live up to the reality, or is it the non-Christians who don't want to face reality? And I'm going to give you a bunch of reasons to think that it's the latter, not the former. Is this thing based on truth or is it just wishful thinking? What I want to do is look at the four most common objections that people raise against the the, the resurrection. And I want to see if we can have an answer for them. And in doing this, we're asking the question, are the Christians the one running from reality or are the non-believers the one running from reality? Why might someone think that the resurrection is not real? Here's argument number one. Some people say this. Look, I've never seen anyone rise from the dead. It's not part of my experience. You're asking me to believe that someone rose from the dead and therefore to believe that he's the son of God and therefore base my entire life on this. I need good proof. I need good evidence that this really happened. And you folks just can't deliver on the goods here. This is something that, happened, something that supposedly happened once upon a time long, long ago. How am I supposed to believe this? Now here's my response to this question, or this objection. I wonder if you understand uh, the nature of historical evidence, and I wonder if there's any historical evidence that could really convince you. Now, historians, put on your thinking cap here. We're going to be talking about the brain here. We'll get back to the heart in a little bit, but right now let's, let's do brain stuff. Historians usually use a couple of very important criteria when they evaluate evidence. They ask the question, how many sources are there? And they ask the question, how close are these sources to the event that they're recording? You see, the the, the more sources there are, the better. And the closer the record is to the event, the less likely that distortion got in there. Now, usually in history, now understand this, when we're dealing with ancient history, history over a thousand years ago, 
Rarely do we have more than one source to go on, and rarely are those sources closer than 50 years to the event that they're recording. For example, we know a great deal about Socrates, the great philosopher, Socrates. Most of what we know about Socrates, however, comes from one source. A man named Plato, his disciple, writing 20 to 50 years after Socrates lived. Most of what we know about the Persian Wars comes from one source, Herodotus, writing um, 50 to 70 years after the event. Most of what we know about, the, about first century Palestine comes from one source, Josephus, writing 50 to 100 years after the event. Most of what we know about the early Middle Ages in the Western world comes from one source, the Venerable Bede writing up to 200 years after the event that he's recording. Most of what we know about Alexander the Great, that, that, that great and somewhat crazy Hellenistic conqueror, most of what we know about him, and there's, there's volumes and volumes written about this guy, but most of it comes from one source, a man named Arian, writing four centuries after Alexander the Great lived. Now, historians don't generally doubt that we've got reliable information about Alexander the Great and about Socrates, and about the Persian War, and about first century Palestine. Because this is normal, this is good historical evidence. One source, within 50 to 400 years of the event, no reason to think that the source is, is making it up, or lying, or distorting it. So we trust this. If we didn't trust this, our history books of the ancient world would be about 90% thinner than what they are. And when we turn to Jesus Christ, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and compare... Compare the resurrection of Jesus Christ with what we have about for, for most other ancient events. Here we have Matthew, we've got Mark, we've got Luke, we've got John, we've got Paul, and we've got a host of other secondary sources. Paul is writing about 20 years after the event, and scholars generally agree that he's passing on information that he got right from the get-go. The Gospels are written probably 20 to 30 years after the event. The liberal scholars will put them up to 50 or 60 years after the event. But by historical standards, that's still very, very close. Five primary sources, dozens and dozens of secondary sources, compared to a single source written 400 years after the event for Alexander the Great. If you think we don't have good historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you ought to, if you're going to have intellectual integrity, claim that we know next to nothing about Alexander the Great, or Socrates, or the Persian Wars, or first century Palestine. If you're not willing to do that, you ought to, with intellectual integrity, admit that we've got very, very good, almost unprecedented historical reasons for believing that the resurrection is true. Now maybe, amen. I agree with it. Well, maybe you're going to say this. You know, you're a hard egg, and I can appreciate that. I'm a hard egg. It took, took a lot to convince me. Um, you, you maybe think this, okay, look, you've got more sources than, than, than we normally have, and they're closer to the event than we normally have. Okay, I can't dispute that. But why do you think they're telling the truth? May, maybe they're, they're just lying. People do that. They make up lies. And, and so maybe though the sources are many and, and they're close to the event, maybe they're just making the whole thing up. Maybe it's a hoax. We'll call this the hoax theory. Fair enough. Fair enough. That's an honest question. It deserves an honest answer. Put on your thinking caps. <clears throat> Let's think about this. Number one, a couple questions here. You have to ask your question, you have, you have to ask yourself this question. Why would anyone do this? Why would anyone do this? <clears throat> In a court of law, if you're going to accuse someone of something, you need to establish a motive. 
So what was the motive for these people to get around here and make up this story about Jesus claiming to be the Son of God, about Him coming down from heaven, about Him doing miracles, about Him dying on the cross, and about Him rising from the dead? Why would they do this? Now, if, if these folks had, uh, you know, cashed in on this, if they developed, of course, sort of a television televangel- televangelist program where they got a lot of money coming in and they're wearing Rolex watches and they're driving Mercedes-Benz and they're living in mansions, maybe then we'd say, oh, you know, maybe they made the whole thing up. Look at how they benefited from it. If there's, if there's a secondary motive, we can maybe, a secondary gain, we can maybe think that they made the whole things up. But that didn't, that didn't happen with the disciples. These folks, we know this from a number of sources in the late 1st and early 2nd centuries. The disciples were, all but one of them were put to death. They were martyred. We know that starting in 62, that wacko Emperor Nero uh, blamed a fire on Rome on the Christians, and the Christians were all throughout the Roman Empire persecuted and put to death. Some of them were set on fire. Others were crucified, mocking the Savior that they claimed. Others were fed to lions. Some of them had to watch their children be fed to lions before they were fed to lions. Whatever else you say about the disciples, they had nothing to gain and everything to lose by proclaiming that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. So the question you've got to ask is this, why would they do that? if they're making the whole thing up. I can begin to understand how they do that if they're telling the truth. But if you're telling me that it was a hoax, (laughs) these people have to be the greatest idiots on the planet. Not only that, but they've got to be the most courageous idiots on the planet. Here's the second point. None of them crack under pressure. You know, if you get a conspiracy going, someone's making up a lie, there's a forgery or whatever, they'll, as long as there's something to gain, they'll stick to their story. But as soon as the going gets rough, the liars start confessing. You know, they, they, uh, the Mormons say that there's three witnesses that saw the angel Moroni give the golden tablets to Joseph Smith. Three witnesses. And the truthfulness of the religion hangs upon that claim. Unfortunately, when Mormons began to be persecuted in the middle of the 19th century, two of the three witnesses recanted their testimony. Now, that's what you expect. I mean, you know, under pressure, when, when you're going to be thrown into prison or martyred, people then tend to say, you know what? Okay, it was a joke. We made the whole thing up. Uh, you know, we were lying. What's amazing is this. And see, in the, in, the, in the first century, you've got a lot of Jews and a lot of Romans who want to expose Christianity as being a lie. If one, just one of the disciples had cracked and admitted that they stole the body, that they made the whole thing up, you certainly would have heard about it. They would have publicized this. this is, they would have prayed to this person around the Roman Empire to prove that Christianity was a hoax. And what is amazing and historically most impressive is that we don't have a single instance of a person recanting their testimony under pressure, watching their children get fed to lions, and then they get fed to lions, they stick to the story to their bitter end. Whatever else you say about the disciples, it's very hard to believe that they're making this whole thing up and that they were lying about this. A third thing that I think refutes the idea that this was a hoax is this. If you read the gospel accounts carefully, um, you'll find that there are, in all the resurrection narratives, differences in them. And some of the differences almost seem to contradict one another. Now, I think this can be easily explained. I'm not going to take the time to do it now. But, but, but there are differences in the accounts. One of them says that there's one angel outside the tomb. Another one says that there's an angel inside the tomb. One says there's two angels outside the tomb. Well, what was it? One, one mentions one woman going to the tomb. Another mentions that a whole bunch of women went to the tomb. One says that, that they left when it was still dark. Another one says that the sun was just beginning to rise. And some see a contradiction there. And, and a number of other little differences in all these accounts. Now, here's the thing. 
I think they can be explained. But what's impressive is that you need to explain them. It looks like they're different. It looks like they're, they're, there's discrepancies there. If they were going to make the story up, don't you think they would have got these little details taken care of? Now, why they make the story up, we still haven't figured it out. But if they're going to make the story up and try to sell this to people, and they agree that we're going to say the tomb is empty, they agree that we're going to say that he was crucified, they agree that we're going to say that he, that he, he appeared to us after he rose from the dead, don't you think they would have got straight the number of angels they're going to claim were around there, and the number of women that went to the tomb, and when they left for the tomb? The fact that there are differences shows that these accounts are independent. Now, some Bible critics turn this around. And they say, well, look, since there are differences in these accounts, how can you trust them? They seem to contradict one another. You've got to love the Bible critics. You know? If there were no discrepancies, then they'd say, look, they made the whole thing up. If they don't make it up and there are discrepancies, they say, oh, look, there are discrepancies. You can't win with these folks. But what interests me is this. Yes, there are differences that can be explained, but the differences, far from invalidating the gospel accounts, show that these things were not conspired to put together. Because these differences certainly wouldn't be there if, somebody, if a bunch of people were, for whatever reasons, conspiring to make up a story here. I'm told by a professional historian that we have no example, not one example in all of history of somebody, of two or more people, witnessing the same event and recording that event about which there are not some apparent discrepancies. This is what you expect when you have different people from different perspectives recalling an event later on. They, different details jump out and sometimes it's hard to put these details together. I remember watching the documentary of John Cameron as he was talking about how he made the movie The Titanic. And he examined all of the records of the eyewitnesses of the Titanic sinking. And he said this, what amazed me is even though all these people were there and they have no motive to, to lie or distort the truth, no two accounts perfectly agree. We don't know for sure whether the, the Titanic broke in two as it was in the process of sinking. Some say it did, some say it didn't. We don't know whether that chimney you know, broke off just before the, the thing went down and smashed a bunch of people. Some say it did, some say it didn't. We don't know whether one of the officers shot himself before the Titanic sunk. Some say he did, some say that he didn't. But nobody, nobody says that because there's discrepancies uh, regarding the eyewitness accounts of the Titanic, that the Titanic didn't sink. Think about it. We've got a lot of different accounts of John F. Kennedy being assassinated. And we've got that one on videotape. Millions of people have seen this videotape. And we still can't agree upon whether the first shot was from the window, whether there was a shot from the, from the you know, bush in front of him, whether his head jerked backward forward or his head jerked forward forward, and which way did his brains fly, and which way did the people walk, and yada, 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 yada. All these differences, and that's on videotape for crying out loud. But nobody in their right mind says, well, you know, there's differences in the account, so we can't really believe that John F. Kennedy wasn't assassinated. And nobody says because there's differences in the account, we can't believe that the Titanic never happened. And nobody in their right mind should ever say that because there are minor differences in the resurrection accounts, that therefore the resurrection didn't happen. It's the same kind of logic. Amen. The differences, the differences in the account, use your head, come let us reason, the Bible says. Think about this. Think about it carefully, because this is very important stuff. The differences in the account simply prove that we're dealing with relatively independent eyewitnesses, and that establishes, it verifies, rather than invalidates, the resurrection claims. A fourth point, a fourth reason why they couldn't have possibly have made this up, is if you read the accounts carefully, you'll notice this. They mention the names of very big and important contemporaneous people. 
They mentioned Caiaphas, the high priest. Everybody knows Caiaphas, the high priest. They mentioned Pilate, the governor. Everybody knows Pilate, the governor. They mentioned Joseph of Arimathea, who opened up uh, his tomb for Jesus to be buried there. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. What you need to know is that Pilate and Caiaphas and, and members of the Sanhedrin were household names in first century Judaism. Now, if you're going to make up a story, what you can't do is drop names like this as part of your story. In fact, if you read the crucifixion and resurrection accounts, Caiaphas and Pilate and Joseph of Arimathea aren't just mentioned, they're crucial players at key points in the whole narrative. You're dealing with a hostile audience that would want to invalidate Christianity if they could. And if the, if the gospel authors aren't telling the truth, the easiest thing in the world to do would be to go to Pilate or go to Joseph of Arimathea or go to Caiaphas the high priest and say, did it happen that way? And they would say no and then we'd be done with it. But they never say no. No one claims they can cross-check this thing and invalidate it, which tells you this. The fact that there are these important names in the resurrection accounts serves to, to prove that, in fact, this is rooted in history. No one invalidates it. They would have if they could have, but they can't because they couldn't. Man, that came out anointed. Okay. A final thing. A final thing is this. About the... About the uh, could they have made this whole thing up? Now, think about this. There are things, a lot of things in the resurrection accounts which simply don't... They, they wouldn't be there if someone was making up a story. Are, these are things that you would leave out. If you could possibly leave it out, you would want to leave this out. For example, in the first century, women, brace yourself for this, but in the first century, women were regarded as being incurable liars, talebearers. It goes back to Eve. In a Jewish mindset, they say, look, it, it, all of our problems started with Eve, and women have been lying ever since. You can't trust a woman. How do you know that a woman is lying? Well, her lips will move. No, it was that kind of a thing. Hey, it was sexist. It, it, you've come a long way, baby. I mean, it, this is sexism gone rampant. A woman could not testify in court against a man. She could, if she saw a crime committed, if she saw a murder committed, her testimony didn't count. The guy went free. She could testify against another woman. You talk about sexism here. Uh, she could testify, but she couldn't testify against a man. Because who's going to believe a woman? You can't believe these women. They make things up all the time. My point is this. Read the gospel accounts. What do you find? The first ones to discover the tomb empty are women. Now, hey, thank God for bold women. Where are the men? The men are back in the room scared to death. They've denied the Lord. They're running scared. They're all frantic. The women are out there saying, we've got to anoint our Savior. Amen. Thank God for bold women. And then the women discover the tomb. It's not just women, but some of these women are of ill repute. Mary Magdalene and, and others. And then they got to run and go tell the men. And in customary Jewish first century fashion, the, women, the men don't believe them. So they got to run and check it out for themselves. Read John 20, for example. The point here is this. There'd be no reason, absolutely no reason on earth, why the gospel authors would include women as part of their narrative, not just as part of their narrative, but as that upon which the whole narrative hangs. They'd have no reason for including that unless that is in fact the way it actually happened. You male apostles don't look very good in this one. And the story doesn't sell very good on this one. Uh, this is going to be a, far from helping you sell your story. Why you'd make it up, we still haven't figured out. But if you're going to make it up, this is the last thing in the world you want to put in there because this is not going to help you sell the story in a Jewish environment. The only motive they could have had for mentioning that it was women who went to the tomb first is because that, in fact, is the way it actually happened. Here's another example. 
One of the last words that Jesus cries out on the cross is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now let's think about that. Here the disciples are sitting around and for whatever reasons we still haven't figured it out, but they want to make up a story. Hey, let's say Jesus was the Son of God. Let's say that He did miracles. Yeah, and He multiplied loaves and fishes. That's right. And, and, and uh, he, the, he caught a bunch of fish from the sea. Remember that time? Yeah, that's right. I remember that. Healed the blind man. Okay, let's throw that one in there. Hey, let's have Him get crucified. That will really help sell our story. Let's see, already in the Jewish environment, the idea of a crucified Savior is a contradiction. They didn't get it. The last thing you'd make up is that he was crucified. Well, not quite the last thing. If you want to do yourself one better, someone would, it, would say this. Well, not only will he be crucified, but here, I'll tell you what. If we want to prove he's the Son of God, he's God on earth, let's have him, let's have him say on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, that will really help sell our, our story. You see... I believe that this statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is one of the most profound passages in the entire Bible because it expresses the horror of horrors as the Son of God, the all-holy Son of God, is bearing the weight and the judgment of all sin throughout history. But that explanation isn't an obvious one, certainly not to the unbelieving audience you're writing these Gospels for. So the only motive that anyone could have possibly had for including in, uh, in, in the words of Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is that that in fact is the way it really happened. This would not have helped them sell their story if that's what they wanted to do. This would have made their story more incredible to the audience that they're, that, that they're uh, given this to. And yet there it is right in the Gospels. Many other examples as well. But the fact that there are counterproductive details in the crucifixion and resurrection narratives shows you, if it shows you anything, if you're using your mind, if you're, being, if you're having intellectual integrity, it shows you that they did not make these things up. Well, maybe you're really a hard egg and you're saying, okay, fine, they were sincere. They were sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. See, this is your only other option. Either these folks are telling the truth or they're not. Now, if you don't want to believe that they're telling the truth, then you have to say they're not telling the truth. Now, if they're not telling the truth, either they're not telling the truth intentionally or they're not telling the truth unintentionally. And I've just given you every reason in the world to believe that they're not intentionally not telling the truth. They're not lying. So your only other option is to say, well, they are unintentionally not telling the truth. I wonder how many more negatives I can fit into a single sentence. Maybe, maybe it was a legend. Let's, let's look at this. You know, maybe it was a big fish story. You know, you, 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 you know, you got these guys that go up on fishing day and they catch a tadpole up in Lake Mille Lacs and by the time they get home, it was a 10-pound walleye that got away. You know, uh, it's, it's fish stories, they get bigger and bigger. The more you tell them, you know, things get exaggerated. Maybe Jesus was this great guy, a great teacher, a real wonderful cat, you know, and, 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 he, and he would pray for people and once in a while they got healed. And so uh, stories got circulating and, and before you know it, he was healing the blind and raising the dead and before you know it, he was claiming to be the Son of God. And before you know it, he was uh, crucified and rose again. So maybe that's the case. Maybe it's a legend. A legend. And this is your only other option. You got to hang all your hopes on this one. I remember sitting in, in a, a class at the University of Minnesota with this atheist scholar of the New Testament. And a New Testament atheist scholar. What a great mix. And, and he said this. He said this, you know what, uh, the, the, it, is, it is interesting, isn't it, that the early disciples worshipped Jesus like a god, and they treated him like a god, and, and uh, they, they, they said he was born of a virgin, and they said he rose from the dead. All this mythology so quickly, it is kind of interesting. But then again, maybe it's not that interesting, because maybe it's not that surprising. They did the same thing with Buddha. They did the same thing with Buddha. Buddha was an atheist, in fact. He didn't even believe in God. But his followers, this, this professor said, his followers began to worship him as God and began to say that he was born of a virgin. And so if it happened to Buddha, it could happen to Jesus. 
And I began to just sink in my chair, just like, oh, man. I guess I picked the wrong year to become a Christian. You know, I don't know what I'm going to believe in now. I had a debate several weeks ago with a man, a member of the Jesus Seminar, and this is what he argued. This is just a legend. And, you know, it's one of the silly legends that crops up here and then. Mythology gone wild. Now, I didn't know then what I do know now. What I know now is this. There's a world of difference between Buddha and Jesus. And you have all the reasons in the world to believe that what happened to Buddha was legend, but no reasons for thinking that what happened to Jesus was legend. First of all, note this. You don't have enough time uh, for legends to develop in the first century. You don't have the right context either. It took five centuries, 500 years, for the legend of Buddha to grow among his followers before they began to worship him as a god and begin to tell stories about his being born of a virgin. And by the way, the story of him being born, born of a virgin involved a giant white elephant and a number of other things which clearly show it to be fanciful. And I don't even want to go into the details because it's a little bit gross. But um, it took five centuries in an environment. Now note this. The, the environment that Buddha was living in was an environment that was used to divinizing people, seeing people as God, telling stories and legends and whatever. That was part of the culture. But see, with Jesus Christ, you're dealing with a culture that is antithetical to this sort of thing. Jews hated the idea that God could become a man or that man could become God. The Romans told stories about how their emperors were divine, and the Jews resisted that. This is an environment where it's absolutely not conducive to start telling a story about how a human being was the Son of God. But not only that, even in an environment that is conducive to this, it takes five centuries for that legend to develop. You don't have five centuries for this legend about Jesus to develop. You don't have one century for this legend of Jesus to develop. You don't have five decades for the story of, of Jesus to develop. You don't even have one decade for the story of Jesus to, to develop. Right from the get-go, all the evidence indicates that these people, while Jesus was still alive and then after, after his resurrection, right from the get-go, they believed that he was divine. They believed that he was God. They start worshiping him as creator. Paul, in, in, in the First uh, Corinthians, written 20 years after the event, that is so close by historical standards. It's portraying all these believers as believing that he rose from the dead, as believing that he's God, as believing that he's Lord, that he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. You don't have time for a legend to develop, especially in this culture, which is antithetical to this. There's no way that this could be a legend. A second thing is this, because you don't have very much time for the legend to develop, you've still got eyewitnesses around. This isn't a story that was told long, long ago and far, far away. This is a story that is told when Pontius Pilate was governor, Caiaphas was high priest, Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin. It happened just a little bit ago, and they're talking to their, their audience this way. Now, this means that if you're going to accept the legendary hypothesis, you have to believe, for example, that James, the brother of Jesus, went along with this because he became a disciple of Jesus Christ. How are you going to get the brother? He grew up with the guy. If the story's not true, he's going to say, folks, it didn't happen that way. He, Jesus wasn't sinless. I grew up with him. He didn't heal the sick. I grew up with the guy. Um, you know, if anyone starts t saying that my brother is the son of God, I'll be the first to expose it as being a lie. <laughs> he wasn't the son of God. Sometimes he wasn't even that nice of a guy growing up. You see, family members are not going to buy into this thing. Mary, Mary was a follower of Jesus. You're telling me that in, in, in her own lifetime, as these stories of Jesus start developing, which she knows didn't happen, all of a sudden she starts mysteriously believing them? That's more of a miracle than the resurrection. I'm sorry. 
Not only that, but some of these witnesses are hostile. Remember, this is an environment uh, where the Jews saw Christianity as a sort of pernicious cult they wanted to stamp out. If this is a legend that's being told about something that happened just a little bit ago, there's plenty of people around who could say, you know what? I, I remember Jesus talking on the hillside and doing all this. He didn't do any miracles. What are you talking about? The tomb's not empty. Joseph and Arimathea didn't offer up his tomb. This is a lie. If they could expose it as a lie, they would expose it as a lie. What's amazing, historically, this is so, so interesting, is that we've got records of what the Jewish response, the, the, the non-Christian Jewish response was to the claims of the early disciples. And they don't deny that Jesus did miracles. They don't deny that the tomb was empty. What they dispute is how he did miracles and how the tomb got empty. They say that he did miracles by the power of the devil himself. And they say that he, the tomb was empty because the disciples stole the body. Now, you can believe that if you want, but now you're back with our first alternative where they're making the whole thing up. And we've already shown that that's a pretty hard thing to believe. What's amazing, however, is that even the opponents agree on the basic facts that Jesus went around doing miracles, that he was put inside of a tomb that everyone knew about, and that the tomb was three days later empty. The, the third thing I'd say about the, the possibility of legend is this. And the final thing I'll say about this uh, possibility of legend is this. If you, in fact, I encourage you to go out and read a lot of mythology and then go read a lot of legend and then go read the Gospels. And what you'll find is that they have nothing in common. They the Gospels just don't read like myth and they just don't read like legend. C.S. Lewis, the great professor of literature who became a Christian at the age of 33 after be being an atheist, he says this, I've spent my life studying mythology, I've spent my life studying legend, and if there's anything you can say about the Gospels, they are not myth and they are not legend. They include, for example, all the kind of historical detail that historians look for uh, in, in, in authentic, valid accounts. They're full of irrelevant detail. They're full of archaeologically significant detail. If ever you have reasons for believing that any ancient document is historical, you have reason to believe that the Gospels are those kinds of documents. It's not mythology, and it's not a hoax. Well, then what is it? Your only alternative is to say it's true. In fact, the reason why it comes down to this. The disciples go out and they preach to the world and they get killed for it. They claim that Jesus was the Son of God. They claim that He came down from heaven. They claim that He did miracles to verify that. They claim that He died and rose from the dead. And they're willing to base their life on it. If they're not telling the truth, you explain to me what is true that would account for their behavior. It couldn't be a hoax and it couldn't be legend. Well, then what is it? Your only remaining alternative is to believe that it happened just the way they say it happened. If it happened the way they said it happened, everything's explained. If it didn't happen the way they say it happened, nothing is explained. And you're left with one giant question mark. Well, maybe final objection you might say is this. You're a real hard egg. And I can appreciate that because I'm a real hard egg. I, you know, faith never comes easy for me. So maybe you'll say this. Okay, listen. Reverend Boyd. Uh, you've given me, you know, a, a good case so far. You've got more sources that are closer than we normally have. And, and I can't see how, they could, how it could have been a hoax. And I can't see how it could have been a legend. But still, you haven't really proven to me that Jesus was the Son of God. I mean, I, you know, it's possible that you're wrong. And you're asking me to have faith. And I'm, not, I, I'm a rationalist. I, I just can't have faith. You know, you're asking me to base my whole life on this. And, and while you've made a strong, reasonable case, you haven't proven it like with mathematical certainty. There's a chance that you're wrong, and I'm not willing to take that chance. I can't take the risk of faith. I stick with the evidence, and I'm not going to go beyond the evidence, so I'm not going to have faith. Let me say this to you, if this is kind of your thinking process. 
and listen very carefully to me here. You're having faith whatever you believe. If you're going to walk out of here and not believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you're exercising a lot of faith. Uh, you know, I am asking you to have faith that Jesus Christ is Lord, and it does go beyond the evidence. I'm not going to take away the faith evidence, uh, the faith element. Um, it takes faith, and there's an element of risk. But if you walk out of here not being a believer, you're having faith, and you're taking a risk. I'm wagering all my hope on the belief that Jesus rose from the dead. You're going to wager all of your hope on the hope that I'm wrong. Because if I'm right, the Bible says that there are serious consequences to this. You're going to wager your eternal destiny on the faith that Jesus did not rise from the dead. We're both going to go beyond the evidence. The question is this, will you also go against the evidence? I've given you all the reasons in the world to believe that Jesus Christ, in fact, did rise from the dead. What are your reasons for thinking that he didn't rise from the dead? And now, what are you going to believe in? It's not a question of whether you're going to have faith or not. It's a question of whether you're going to have faith in something that has evidence for it or not. And I encourage you, as the Lord did, to use your mind. Come, let us reason. Think clearly about this. This is so, so important. Everything hangs upon this. If ever you're going to be clear-headed, be clear-headed now. I'll say one other word about this, and that is this. So far, I'm talking just history. I'm talking theory. And we need to do that because God wants us to use our heads in becoming believers. But you'll find this. If you will take this risk and have faith on the basis of this evidence, that very quickly, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ stops being simply a historical hypothesis, and it starts being a wonderful, dynamic, living reality. Amen. Every believer, amen, believers in this room would tell you that, you know, I, I believe in Jesus Christ because of the intellectual evidence. That's very important to me. I don't want to be deceived. But now that I've lived with the Lord, I've put my faith in the Lord, and I walk by faith in the Lord, my proof that Jesus Christ is, in the law, is, is, is for real is not just historical evidence. My proof is that I talked to him this morning, and I'm going to talk to him later on, and I was worshiping him a little bit earlier, and he impacts me, and I feel his presence, and he transforms my life. Hallelujah. The Bible says this, that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the power that raised Jesus from the dead comes and takes residence inside of you. Ephesians chapter 1. And that same power that burst open the stone and raised that corpse from the dead and glorified him, now pulsates in my body. It flows through me. It transforms my mind and transforms my heart and gives me hope and gives me a love that is not my own. Now, I'm not saying that when you become a believer, all of a sudden life is a you know, bed of roses. No, there's still battles and obstacles and even doubts you struggle with. But it, deep inside, there's a new heart that's pulsating within you. Have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Commit your life to Him. He made it as easy as possible. It's as simple as saying, I do, when you get married. In fact, I want to give you that chance to do it right now. It takes one minute and it changes eternity. If I could ask everybody to close your eyes, Bow your heads. And, and those who are believers, start praying now for those who are not believers. And as I'm doing this, if the choir wants to come forward, we're going to enter into another time of worship. But I want to give everyone here a chance who hasn't ever done this to say, to a point of declaration, I want to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. You've heard the case I just gave, and now it's a question of your heart. Your head says yes to it. Now it's a question of your will. Will you surrender to it? 
And so if you, I'm not going to call you out or have you come forward or anything. I would just like you to raise your hand very quickly. And I'm going to pray for you up here. Uh, it just, it's, just about, it's between you and God. If you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you recognize that you need Him. Raise your hand very quickly. And I'll just call on you. Thank you, ma'am. And in the back there, thank you. Brother, thank you. Over on this side, sister, I'll pray for you. A number of hands going up in the back there. Praise God. I would... I want to welcome you to the kingdom. I want to just say this quick prayer. Sister over there in the back, brother up here, all over the auditorium. People are saying, yeah, I need this. This is the time to do it. Easter Sunday, what a great momentous thing to change your life right now. You're simply saying, I believe that he's for real. I believe it's true. You're not saying that you're going to be able to be perfect on your own. No, none of us are. But you're saying you need a savior and you accept the sacrifice that Jesus gave for you. Anybody else here? Raise your hand. Brother, I, I see the hand up here in the front. Brother, praise God, uh, the Lord is so happy about this. Sister over there, a number of hands just going up all over the place. Others, sister, amen. You're just saying, I, I do. This is like the preacher going to lead you in, a, in a, an oath of being married to the God. I do. I, I pledge my life to you. Anybody else? Sister, amen. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Anybody else want to say, this is my morning. I, I need a change. I'm going to commit my life to Jesus Christ. Sister, thank you. Over there, thank you, sister. Anybody else want to just say, yep, I, 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 I believe it. It's, it's, you've taken away my reasons for not believing it. It doesn't mean you feel warm and gushy right now. You don't have to feel anything right now. It starts with a decision. In some ways, it can be just a cold, hard decision. It's like, my dad said this. I just run out, I've run out of reasons for objecting to this. I guess it's true. And then you commit your life to it, and then things begin to change. Anybody here? Any, anyone else just want to say, yeah, will you pray for me? Raise your hand very quickly. We've got about 20 people or so here. Anybody else? Anybody else? Okay, back there. Praise God. I see a sister and brother back there. Amen. Over here. Wonderful. You, you have no idea how much this changes things. Uh, it, it's as simple as possible, and it's also as profound as possible. Okay, whether you raise your hand or not, uh, I, I, if you want to accept Christ as your Savior, you're going to pray this prayer. We're all going to pray it with you. Uh, those who are believers, pray this prayer as a reaffirmation of your faith. You who raised your hand or didn't raise your hand, you pray this uh, for the first time. Just like the preacher would lead you in a, in a wedding ceremony, you repeat the words, but do it from your heart. And it goes like this. Heavenly Father, I acknowledge that you are God, that you are Lord, that you are Creator, and that you are King. And I confess that I am a sinner in need of your grace but I believe that you sent Jesus to die on the cross to bring about my forgiveness and so I ask you Lord Jesus to come into my life to wash me to forgive me to make me whole and I ask you Holy Spirit to come and live inside of me and help me live with for God with passion Heavenly Father I thank you for loving me for forgiving me and for saving me in Jesus name the Bible says that when a person comes to repentance and accepts Christ all the angels in heaven rejoice and so we want to say welcome to the kingdom all of you who raise your hands we welcome you to the kingdom hallelujah we praise God praise God Hallelujah, that's what it's about. Welcome to the kingdom.
That simple prayer changes everything. I encourage you to now, along with the rest of us, enter into sold-out worship of the Lord. You who raised your hands or made a decision for Christ, you didn't raise your hands. At the end of the service, I want to encourage you. Remember, remember this now. I have put together a little package that I really would like you to have. Because God loves what you just did, and Satan hates what you just did. And you've just entered into a war zone, whether you know it or not. And so you need some help getting started on this. It will take one minute after the service. Please come forward and overhear some people right under the screen have some information they'd like to give you. And now I want us to close out the service the next 15 minutes by just with singular focus, uh, lifting up the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord, entering into worship, letting the Holy Spirit flood this place, creating a celebratory, profound sense of His presence. Praise God. Let's stand and worship God. Amen.